Hello, colleagues. This is Dr. Richard McCallum, editor-in-chief of the Journal of Investigative Medicine, Jim. And um, we're acknowledging the fact that July is Hepatitis C month. And to fully, um, I think, uh, make sure we, we have the best possible uh, representative of that field, I've chosen um, the associate editor for liver disease on my editorial board of Jim, uh, Dr. Don Rocky. Don being the professor and chair of medicine at Medical College of South Carolina in Charleston. And uh, brief to briefly introduce Don and his background, um, graduated as a degree in medicine from MCV, Medical College of Virginia, just nearby Richmond. I'm an old UVA guy from Charlottesville, so we'll have to discuss that later. Um, he went on to do his internship residency and fellowship in gastroenterology on the West Coast in San Francisco. Rudy Schmidt's old, old um, uh, grounds of liver disease. Then went to Duke University as head of, of hepatology and uh, went on uh, in 2005 to go to Dallas as chief of GI, built a stellar division there at Southwestern before going on in 2012 as professor and chair at uh, Charleston, where he's also developing a stellar department of medicine. Don's got many other responsibilities and roles. He's currently the, um, uh, prof the, direct, the head or president of our Southern Society uh, for Clinical Investigation. He's also uh, president of the Association of Specialty Professors and his funding has always been strong, NIH and other foundations, focusing on liver disease. That's what I think I think of Don. But as I always remind myself after I meet him, he's a solid, well-rounded gastroenterologist who also uses um, the wound healing principles of the liver uh, to use this as a model for his interest in research about wound healing in general. But we're focusing on Don's expertise today on hepatitis C. And Don, I have to say that over the years of my career, probably the two biggest things that have happened has, has been the, the H. pylori revolution. You know, we've cured peptic ulcer, which has been around since Noah's Ark. And, and now we're curing hepatitis C. And uh, you may want to give us a little update on your vision of what's happened with this revolution in treating hepatitis C uh, virology-wise and, and more importantly, histology-wise. You know, how reversible is a fibrotic and or pending cirrhotic liver? And what do you see down the road uh, for all these antivirals that we're using? Right. Um, well, first, let me thank you for the kind um, invitation to talk this afternoon and uh, the kind introduction. Um, so I would agree. You know, I think that uh, the, the current antivirals that are available, the direct acting antivirals, have basically revolutionized the entire field of hepatology. Um, it's clearly been, I, you know, 25, 30 years ago, we might argue that liver transplantation was the first revolution, and then therapy for hepatitis B. But clearly within the last 
um, seven years when these direct acting antivirals became widely available, uh, the field has been completely revolutionized. And fundamentally, every patient now can um, expect to be cured. So, um, you know, there are many, many different regimens and we don't have time to go into all of the regimens, but um, if, you know, the response rate for each of them, even in patients with cirrhosis is over 95%. And if you fail to respond to one um, uh, regimen, then you can be uh, treated with another regimen and eventually you, your hepatitis C will be eradicated. So, so truly revolutionary, uh, no question. And I, and I do, I really like your comment about the idea that along with uh, eradication of hepatitis C comes other biological effects. So, you know, we know that, that liver fibrosis, which is the end product of um, chronic inflammation caused by hepatitis C or by any other um, uh, liver primary liver disease, uh, and, and which leads ultimately to cirrhosis. We know that inflammation drives fibrosis, and we know that when we eradicate hepatitis C, we reduce the inflammation. So patients' immunotransferases will usually drop. Um, and the data are now emerging uh, to suggest that when you uh, eliminate that virus, you eliminate or reduce inflammation and fibrosis actually can regress. Um, so there have been, at the last several liver meetings, there have been a number of studies that have emphasized this and we're now seeing uh, full manuscripts being published um, uh, uh, emphasizing the reduction in important clinical outcomes. So there have been several studies. Now it was initially a little bit controversial about hepatitis or hepatoma hepatocellular cancer, but now I think the evidence is pretty clear. When you eradicate hep C, the risk of developing HCC is reduced. Uh, the risk of developing complications of portal hypertension uh, is reduced. So uh, we published a paper uh, not long ago suggesting that if you, that when you eradicate hepatitis C, your risk of variceal bleeding is reduced mm -hmm. down the road. Um, I suspect that the same is going to be true for hepatic encephalopathy, ascites, all of the uh, complications associated with portal hypertension. So, so truly revolutionary, um, you know, biologically and I would say clinically as well. Another aspect, Don, of course, for the um, as chairman of medicine, uh, as you mentioned already, you you have to oversee um, other aspects besides liver disease. And um, you brought up transplant, of course, liver transplants. But for that matter, transplanting any organ, uh, now we have a new uh, world of donorship available. You can be hepatitis C positive, obviously, and be a candidate to donate an organ because we know 98% of the time we can treat you within a month or so of transplant and eradicate your hepatitis C potential. What's been your, your observations of that of that world. Right. So, so actually you bring up two really important points here. Uh, one is that um, we 
but these direct acting antivirals have clearly expanded the, uh, the pool of transplantable organs. And it's not only for liver, it's heart, kidney, lung, all of the solid organs that uh, come from patients who were infected with hepatitis C can be used now. And there, there is pretty good data suggesting that it's safe to do so. You, of course, you do have to, to eradicate, eliminate the virus in the tra new transplant recipient. Um, so, so it's really been, uh, it, it's been a boon to, uh, to many transplant programs. The other, the other point that your, um, that your comment made is that, uh, or your comment suggests is that, um, remember patients after liver transplant, they're on immunosuppressants, they oftentimes have uh, comorbidities, they're very sick. Um, these patients can all be treated. So, the direct acting antivirals are very safe and they can be used in a wide panoply, as it were, of types of patients. Um, they're, even, they're effective in patients on dialysis. Um, they're they, they are not only effective, but they're very safe and can be used in a, a broad swath of types of patients. So it's not a problem to transplant somebody, put them on immunosuppressants, and then treat their hepatitis C. Whereas in years past, you would never do that because the immunosuppression would cause a, a rebound in viral replication and the patients would develop overwhelming um, liver disease. Uh, Don, let me take a step back here in your role as chair of medicine. Obviously, your life has taken a 180 degree turn. Uh, tell us how you're welcoming your new interns and medical students and how you've adapted uh, uh, your strategy for the year as chairman of medicine. How are you conducting your, your teaching program, essentially? Well, well, actually, Richard, so I've just taken on a new role um, in our Digestive Disease Research Center. As you know, uh, MUSC, just, we just uh, obtained two, two of these large grants. So, so I'm actually uh, stepping down um, as chair. I, I can tell you, I suspect you're getting at the idea of a virtual world. Good. And uh, yeah, we're all moving to a virtual world. I'm getting pretty good at WebEx and Zoom myself. Uh, <laughs> in fact, today I think I've had about eight hours of um, Zoom and or WebEx meetings, but everything is moving to a virtual world. I, you know, it's, it's interesting um, as we're planning for meetings and how we communicate and collaborate uh, I think there are opportunities in, in the virtual world, and people seem to like this, uh, this Zoom and WebEx business. So we'll see how long that lasts. But I, I, I think there are going to be a lot of new opportunities for learning, um, for chatting through, uh, through these um, the virtual uh, platforms. So, Don, uh, let me ask you a little provocative question. If I'm an ID guy, I could. Uh, come up with what someone once told me during the H. pylori era, we can take over H. pylori, you don't need gastroenterologists, we can uh, just treat this as an infection. Um, has the liver world been uh, taken back a bit by any aggressive ID folks who think that maybe uh, hepatitis C is really an ID problem and we don't need to worry about the big world of hepatology? Uh, do you see some, uh, some changes in the way that's uh, sliced and diced in the future, shall we say? Yeah, I, I, um, 
I think that we're going to see as as these uh, direct acne antivirals become um, more commonplace and uh, as we get better at diagnosing hepatitis C, I think you're going to see a lot of different styles of physicians and physician extenders treat these patients. Um, so as you probably know, there are several studies that have shown that uh, that primary care physicians and uh, um, advanced practice providers can effectively treat patients with hepatitis C. I would, there is one, uh, one word of caveat or one word of caution, and that is, is that when you're seeing a patient with hepatitis C, it is fundamentally uh, critical that you stage the severity of their disease. So whether you do that uh, with a combination of a physical exam and a non-invasive test of liver fibrosis, such as FID4 or uh, APRI or a fiber scan, you absolutely have to stage uh, the patient's um, severity of disease. And if that patient has any form of advanced fibrosis, I think they need to be referred to a uh, subspecialist. Um, and finally, how, how, how aggressive are you with the screening? We're taught that, uh, you know, if you're in the uh, age range I am, uh, you know, everyone who, uh, born after, what, 1948 or something um, needs to be automatically given hepatitis screening in your clinic. How, how aggressive are you with throwing a broad net and doing extensive hepatitis C screening for anyone in your clinic who's in that age range? Yes. Um, so you're talking about the baby, the baby yeah, boom baby boom. recommendation. Yeah. The CDC initially recommended that all baby boomers be screened. Now the recommendation is that everybody gets screened. So all adults should be screened. Um, and right. so that's what we're recommending. And certainly, you know, by the time you see me, somebody's identified an abnormal liver test, and I don't even I don't even order antibodies myself. I or, always order hepatitis C RNA levels. Um, but I would be I would have no threshold to screen somebody with um, with abnormal liver tests for HCV RNA. And I think in primary care, I mean, this is going to be a, a big question. You know, we're in the middle of a a non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, a NASH epidemic. There are a lot of abnormal liver tests. I think we probably just should start screening everybody for hepatitis C. Yeah, well, we're down here, as you know, um, near the Mexican border, and we, we have a pretty high NASH population and a very uh, strong um, sort of um, movement from NASH into uh, fibrosis and uh, unexplained uh, idiopathic cirrhosis. Uh, do you think, in retrospect, uh, that a latent hepatitis C infection can be driving some of these so-called unexplained uh, uh, fibrosis and idiopathic cirrhosis in these fatty livers? Do you, th you think we should be more um, sort of... Uh, on the ball regarding latent hepatitis C in the so-called fatty liver patient? Yeah, you know, so that's a great question. There, there are a couple of studies that have suggested that um, especially genotype 3, hepatitis C um, genotype 3, may uh, predispose one to fatty liver disease. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not sure, I'm not familiar with your genotype. There, you know, there are different genotypes in different parts of the world and different parts of the country, and it may be that you have a, 
uh, genotype type three predominance there in, in El Paso. But yeah, so the there is clearly a data that suggests that there is a, a synergistic effect between um, the hepatitis C and, and components of the metabolic syndrome. I don't think we understand biologically what the mechanisms are, but um, but there's there's pretty good epidemiologic evidence that suggests there's a signal there. Well, Don, let me say, I can't think of anyone better in the country to represent Hepatitis C month here in July and to uh, and give us this sort of state-of-the-art review of Hepatitis C. I really thank you very much. On a personal note, I have to tell my listeners that uh, Dr. Rocky is a hokey. That means he uh, spent some time in Blacksburg, Virginia at uh, Virginia Tech, which is my daughter and son-in-law's university. I'm a hardcore UVA guy, but Don and I are going to uh, eventually come to terms with that. But I, want, I wanted to say, Don, how much I enjoyed this. This is uh, state-of-the-art, and we don't very often have our listeners exposed to that. So thank you very much for spending this time with us. Thank you very much, Richard. It's a real pleasure and an honor. And uh, we'll have to have you uh, up to Blacksburg sometime to, to <laughs> revisit the good old days. Will do. Once again, listeners, um, thank you very much. and. Um, we look forward to a podcast in, um, in our next series in August. Uh, good afternoon. Bye-bye.